and at some level, I got tired of being poor, right? Yeah. I guess is what it comes down to. So I got tired of being told, no, you can do this, you can do that. And I mean, I knew I was able to, I knew I was smart enough. And it was just a matter of, did I have the guts to go do it, right? And so I was ticked off enough to go do it. Specifically, when I was in my consulting gig, I mean, I didn't see my kids, right? I... Hey, y'all. Today, we chatted with my older brother, David, and it was a great conversation. But most of all, I love that I needed to remind him to share our parents. Classic older brother move, huh? You're an older <laughs> brother, too. I am. I am. <laughs> it was great. Um, David is such a baller. He uh, He's building this his little real estate empire in uh, multifamily housing and, uh, you know, from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, in the Midwest. In the Midwest. And he's doing such an amazing job. And it's it's just an inspiration. You know, most of my friends are in startups and we kind of run around trying to build something, raise money, hope that it brings some profit one day. And meanwhile, he's just like slowly and steadily building, you know, building out a really impressive business. I think he owns like a thousand apartments right now. Yeah. And we're just trying to stay in his good graces. So maybe he can treat us one day. <laughs> uh, no, but it was a really meat and potatoes conversation of business. So he walks us through what multifamily investing is, what the returns look like, how he thinks about investing in a market or area. We talk about some of the operations. And my second most favorite, I had two favorite pieces of the conversation where he really got very vulnerable with us and shared with me his why, which is his family. He shared what, how he thinks about himself as a poor kid still from uh, Ukraine and Sierra Leone, which is where we're from, even though today he's made so much progress, but that's still how he sees himself. And we talk about, we get into how that's driven him and allowed him to get to where he is today. So enjoy. Check it out. A ton of good knowledge and really inspirational speech. Yeah. And love you so much, David. Thanks for everything. Thank you, David. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Power Hour. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I thought we'd get started by catching up with you on what are some of the hardest parts about being a big brother? <laughs> hardest parts of being a big brother. Um, that's a good one. There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> We've got time. You can wrap with us on it. It's a pretty cool role, right? I mean, you grow up with doing martial arts in your garage and then your sister comes and does splits with you <laughs> and you take her everywhere and you like drive her to school and you wipe her nose and yeah, take like care of dad. her. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a great progression to see. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I love it. It's funny because I think we have 12 years between us. So it does feel a little bit like a dad you like you, you were you, doing you a lot of think things or you, were, like, you know washing. you were like washing my clothes i remember this karate coming with you to karate class and it's so funny because with your oldest she's 16 years younger than me which is almost as much as our age difference do you feel like you got a lot of practice with me to to then have your own children yeah i'm trying to give myself like, some good credit like, here i feel like in a way you're my first kid so yeah yeah Great. definitely Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Absolutely. All the lessons that you learned with
with me, Bridget, Elizabeth, and on the girls, they can all thank me. I'll, I'll wait for my presence. I think, I think for a while I was calling Bridget Jennifer. So yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember. And it's so great now because I'm learning via them. I love that we just had our first boyfriend in the family with the girls. So I was going through my own emotions of, oh my goodness, I can't believe she has a boyfriend now and she's, she's growing up and it's great. So I'll be, it'll be much smoother sailing for me when I have kids. Yep. All right. So brought you here because really excited to learn about multifamily investing from you. But before we dig into that, just start with what is multifamily investing? Can you define that for us? Multifamily, I think the whole name is very complicated. I mean, basically we're investing in apartments. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think the name came about probably because of the juxtaposition with single family, right? So most people understand buying single family houses, pretty much the same business model, just more under one roof. So apartments. And I think the thing that's different is you get economies of scale, obviously, and a lot of advantages from being able to have more in one place. Um, but also from a financing perspective, it's different, right? So single family financing really falls into residential categories, which is what everybody who's ever bought a house goes through, at least in the United States. But with multifamily, there's a bit more latitude and frankly, more attractive options available. I mean, it's pretty simple business when you think about it. Yeah. So understanding with single family housing, this might be a family that buys a home as a means of investing. We know that real estate appreciates with time. So this is a way that they can be investing in property. You might buy homes that are not yours. I know a lot of people these days are doing Airbnb or various other ways of renting those properties out. But the difference with multifamily is to your point, everything's under one roof. So this might be a larger property with multiple apartments in it. And like you said, the financing is different. Yep, exactly. So I want to make this a little bit more real with examples because I, I learn best with examples. So I wanted to touch on a couple of the deals that you've been working on. I know you just recently closed a $6 million raise fundraise for a property on top of a $3 million fundraise that you did right before it. So huge kudos. This is a ton of work. And want to just ask you on this note of financing, how does that fundraising go? And, and tell me about your investors. I mean, this year has been a pretty active year for us and kind of uncharacteristically so in that, you know, COVID happened and we were very cautious and we didn't do too much during 2020. We bought nothing. In 21, we bought two properties. And then this year, I'm frankly losing count. I think it's like a sixth deal this year. Some of the deals we've done this year were for ourselves, just Jessica and I. But from a fundraising perspective, yeah, it's been interesting and challenging because so we closed the deal in, what is it, March, I think? We closed the deal in March, which was $5.4 million deal, $1.4 million raise. Then we closed the deal in June, which was a $10.8 million purchase, a $3.5 million raise. And then we just closed the deal, this last one, last Friday. $18.75 million purchase, $6.3 million raise. Wow. And I guess the dynamic is you're, I mean, I, I don't have a ton of network. I mean, the people right. that invest in our deals are mostly people that I used to work with or people that, you know, somehow I have met through just life. And 
a lot of them invest in deal after deal. So I guess the challenge was the well was a little bit drier than, than most for this last one. And again, it was a pretty big race for us. We began, like I say, we don't do too many deals a year, but things it's came together and everything worked anyone. out. Yeah, things yeah. came together, everything worked out. Huge. So who are these investors? These are people that are in your network. Are they specifically investors in this asset class or do they have other investments as well that they make? A good mix. Many of our investors are people I used to work with. So folks from consulting, right? Ex-colleagues uh, of mine, ex-partners of mine, a good portion came from outside of consulting. So my work before I ended up in management consulting at McMaster Carr, so in corporate, a number of people came from just business school. So ex-classmates that are in industry today, various industries and various parts of the world. Um, and really, for the most part, I think what has happened is, so we do a newsletter, right? And the thing about newsletters is consistency. And I think over the years, I mean, these people have been on the list and have been receiving whatever content we've been putting out, some educational, some talking about some of the previous deals we've done. And I think they're just quietly consuming this. And then maybe somebody within their network that we're we have as a mutual friend reaches out to them and says, Hey, I did this thing with David. And then they are like, well, hold on. Well, let me check it out. Right. So, I mean, it's not like a lot of our investors are new, right? A lot of these folks are people that I've known for over 10 years and maybe five years ago, they were not in a place where they were able to invest and now they are, but it's interesting because certainly people have reached back out or even like some people that are in this, in this deal that are new that are investing with us for the first time. I say, hey, do we need to talk some more? And the response is, I get your newsletter. I, I hear it. I see it. I feel like I'm very up to date with what's going on. So really, I don't have a lot of questions. And yeah. then some, some people have a lot of questions, right? And some people just aren't very knowledgeable about the asset class. I think in general, in the US, there's a big emphasis of investing in Main Street or sorry, Wall Street, right? So a lot of <laughs> stocks and bonds and mutual funds, because that's marketed. I think the financial industry has done a pretty good job of marketing those types of investments, right? And particularly with, I think this is kind of unique to the United States that a lot of pensions disappeared from companies and the companies and the government kind of moved towards this 401k idea, which is you invest for your own pension and we will somewhat help subsidize that if you deposit pre-tax dollars into an investment. And so a lot of people are forced to learn more about stocks investing and bonds investing. Um, and real estate is kind of one of those things that everybody has heard of, but most people don't understand that you can invest in apartments. Most people think, you know, what's accessible is buying like a, another single family house and renting it. And then a lot of people do that and then get scared or have a bad experience because, you know, tenants are tenants, tenants are people, people are difficult and sometimes they have a bad experience. So they shy away from pursuing real estate investment because it's maybe they had a bad experience or they just believe that, you know, buying an apartment complex is just, I mean, the barrier to doing that is too large, right? You need large sums of capital. Totally. So in terms, in terms of our investors, then um, I think people are in, all of those things. I don't think any of our investors are just in real estate. I think people do a little bit of everything. And most of the conversations I have are surrounding helping people understand 
what the asset class is, what's the risk profile of it. It's not VC, it's not PE, it's not a Subway franchise or McDonald's franchise. Like what are those differences? And just giving people a landscape of here's, here's everything out there, right? And it's really about what you're most comfortable with. Here's why I think this asset class is pretty exciting. And I'm not saying go cash out your entire stock portfolio and put it into real estate. I'm saying, try it and see, see how you like it. I love that you started to touch on education, which we've talked about this before as something that you've really needed to help out your investors with understanding this asset class. You mentioned that it's much more capital required to invest in this asset class. It's not as accessible. Like for instance, with stocks, you can just put in a hundred dollars, $50, $25, just try and get a sense of what that's like and learn. But here I know that the check sizes are much larger and that is much more risky. You started to talk a little bit too about the differences between uh, real estate and other asset classes. What are you hearing from your investors in terms of what's really helpful with the education that you're doing? Two things, right? I think some people are shocked. <laughs> um, I know we had at least one person, or at least probably two people over the past month where <laughs> Like having explained the model and explained the average returns, this guy's a dentist and he's like, this doesn't make sense. Like this, this, something has to be wrong. Like, what am I missing? Like, this is just doesn't make any sense. And I mean, a lot of people are just not, I think people are people. And, and what I mean by that is people have to be skeptical, but also this is not something that's taught anywhere really yeah. I mean, in business school. I took some real estate classes and. I mean, most of them taught me to be a portfolio manager for a large real estate ownership group, right? They didn't really teach me to go do something like this. And the, the skepticism is good because you want someone really understanding what they're investing in, but because it's not taught, everyone kind of assumes that they know everything out there, right? And so mm -hmm. when they're presented with something which is actually low risk and fairly high reward relative to other investment options, they feel like there's a catch, right? And it's like, what's the catch? So that's one reaction. The other reaction is, wow, where has this been all my life? Why am I only finding about it right now? Right. And so those are kind of the two types of reactions. And then there's the third, which is, you know, I'd love to do it, but I can't write that check size. Right? I'd like to write a smaller check. Will you consider that? And I mean, we can talk about check sizes later, but when this started, right, I kind of stumbled into this myself. When we moved to Chicago, Jessica and I bought a, bought a single family house. And I was blown away, right? Because, you know, we bought a house with like 5% down and we didn't have much money. We just graduated college and it's like, we can control, you know, a $200,000 asset by putting 10 grand down. Like this doesn't, like a, you can't do that in Sierra Leone. You can't do that in Ukraine. Um, it was just a very eye-opening and exciting thing. So I, I read so many books about it. I'm like, we need to buy a house a year. Every year, let's go buy a house. Whatever <laughs> money we have, let's go buy something. That was the original plan. Until life happened, right? We have kids, uh, the 2008 downturn happened. Um, it's just, the plan was always that, let's go do that. But of course, like we didn't have cash. So whatever savings we had, we saved it. If we could buy something, we did. But then the issue came up, scaling, right? Scaling single family is pretty difficult, especially I was managing our single families myself. But the main, the main eye opener was the education that you could use so much leverage which magnifies the returns further, which 
you can't do that really in any other asset class. You can't do that in in stocks unless you use margin, which is pretty pretty scary, right? And you can't really do that in VC or some of the other investment types. Perfect segue. Would love you to walk us through what the returns look like in multifamily investing. I just sent out an update to investors on one of our deals. Um, we bought the property three years ago in August. So August of 2019. And that property returned 8.4% year one, year two, year three returned 8%. So that was accumulated 888. What is that? 25 point, 24.8%, something like that. Um, and then we refinanced that asset and returned 100% of investors' cash back to investors. So 124.8% in three years, which is like 41.6% return on average a year, right? Mm-hmm. And everything going forward, because we still own that asset, it's not like we sold it. So the investors that are in that deal going forward, pretty much realizing an infinite return because they have no more money left in the deal. I mean, that's a pretty good investment. And I'm not going to sit here and say each investment in real estate and multifamily is like that, but it's not too far removed. I mean, it really isn't that far off, right? So again, this is an asset we- Pause you for a second and break this down for the general audience that are not really in multifamily day-to-day. Sure. So I'll just use this deal as an example. So we bought this property. It was 97 units. Actually, it was 94 units when we bought it in August of 2019. We bought it for $3.696 million. So $3.7 million um, in August of 2019. This August is its three-year anniversary, right? So and in September, we completed the refinance. So really, literally three years and a month to the date when we bought it, we were able to return... 41% a year to investors. Check sizes. So purchase price on that deal was 3.7, let's say roughly. We had to raise 1.4 million. So that was, again, just to make it simple, I think we had 12 investors in that deal, but let's say 14, right? Everybody at $100,000. We just set our minimum for checks at 100,000 just because, again, we're a small team. We started with really nobody. And I didn't want to manage a ton of people at 20K, right? So we said, hey, it's 100,000. If you want in, let's do that. So everybody who gave us $100,000 received their $100,000 back this year, last month. And in the three years prior, so for the first year, they received $8,400 check back. The next year, they received an $8,400 check back. And then this year, they received an $8,000 check. That's your cash on cash return. So really the cash on cash return is just distribution of profits or cash flow mm-hmm. after you paid, after you collected rents, paid all your expenses, property management fees and mortgage. Yep. And that's just the distribution of monies left over. The reason that the property did so well was a, we, so. So, but it sounds like if if I put in a hundred K in just to finish up on the returns here, if I put in a hundred K, I would get about eight K for the subsequent three years annually, but at the end there's additional return as well. Correct or no? 
Correct. So, so you got that 8K per year, and then this year you got your 100K back, and you still have your 100K still in the property. So you have received wow. 124 plus whatever plus K and change, 124K yeah. and change um, right. back, but you still have your your stake, your stake in the asset is the equivalent of 100K, but frankly, it would be more when we sell it, if we, mm -hmm. if we chose to sell it. Um, so that's that's the summary of the return, yes. Okay, so, so I put in your, 100K year one, and Correct. then three years later, I've gotten 8K each year plus 100K back that in your, in year, three. while I still have the value of my initial investment still in. And That's then you correct. end up selling that property. What is it? Seven years average on average or five years later? We typically tend to say five to seven years, depending on when, you know, what the market conditions are like. But yeah. I mean, frankly, like the investors in that deal took their hundred thousand dollars that was returned to them and rolled yeah. it into this deal that we just closed on Friday. So now the initial hundred K is earning a return in property A and now earning a return property B. And with property B, the approach of the business plan is to refinance that in roughly three years and return anywhere between 75% to 100% back to investors. So that capital can keep on being recycled and essentially earning you a pretty decent size return. Um, it does yeah, sound it's, too it's, good it's, to it's be a, true. It's a, it's a pretty cool business plan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we haven't even talked about taxes, right? So all of this is tax advantaged because your 8K that you're receiving a year mm -hmm. Is that is essentially tax free because the any real estate in America and how the rules are written, there's a ton of depreciation that's generated for your real estate, right? So yeah, any, anybody who owns a house knows that they're really getting a quote depreciation loss on their taxes because your house is supposed to depreciate to zero after for residential it's thirty nine and a half years, for commercial it's twenty seven and a half years. So essentially, if you bought a a building worth, let's say, two point seven five million every year. You're getting a hundred thousand dollar depreciation loss. So when you get your K one statement, which you take to your tax return, you will get your eight thousand dollar check, and then on your tax return, it actually says you lost money because of the depreciation that was generated. So you're not taxed on that cash. That is a stock contrast to, you know, if you put money in the stock market, short term capital gains thirty five percent. Yeah, capital gains about 15%, depending on how long you've owned it. Um, and on the refinance, like what we just did, there is no tax because there's no sale. Yeah. So essentially, because you because there hasn't been a sale of the asset, all taxes are postponed until you sell the asset. So actually, the conversations we've been having with our investors have been more along the lines of why sell at all? Right. Yeah. Just, if we can refinance and give you back more money tax free, then Makes yeah, sense. take a good vacation, go invest in something else, go invest in more real estate, go invest in crypto, whatever you want to do. That's just money you have to spend without a tax consequence. Makes sense. Where do I sign up and where do where do so many other people sign up? We're, we're in. Uh, I want to run through one more example to make sure I really understand. So let's say someone puts in five million with you and keeps rolling these investments like you just mentioned, because you can keep your money in, have your money keep working for you. You don't have to pay the taxes affiliated with making the sale. What on average would the cash distribution for a year look like? So, I mean, similar, just to be conservative, because the interest rate environment has changed, right? So the cost of borrowing 
because everything we do, right, just like an investment or a purchase of a, of a single family house or a personal residence, we raise cash mostly for the down payment and then we take a big loan, right? So the, taking the big loan is the leverage we talked about earlier, which really multiplies your return. Um, so the costs of borrowing have, have gone up, right? So just to be conservative, let's say we can return between five and 8% a year on whatever cash somebody writes us, right? So in this case, $5 million, let's say, let's say it's a 5% return, right? So $5 million, 5% is 250K ish, right? Yeah. So, so, so basically roughly a 250K cash flow on a $5 million input a year, and that's on the low end, right? Um, and then there is the kicker when you either refinance or sell the property. We don't do a deal unless we can double our capital in roughly five to seven years. That's our benchmark, right? Other than that, if we don't think we can hit those metrics, we wouldn't do the deal. Um, that roughly equates to somewhere between 15 to 25% annual average return. Um, so that's what we're usually looking at. Yep. Got it. So again, to summarize for myself, it's about five to 8% return annually. And then a year three typically is when you get your initial investment back. And depends then on the, you depends on the plan, but yes, yep. you end up selling and you're looking to double the value of the property by the time you sell. Either sell or refinance. So the, okay. the, just, just to demystify the whole thing further, um, the main difference between single family and multifamily is how it's valued, right? Mm -hmm. So single family is really valued based on what did houses in that general neighborhood sell for, right? So essentially the way it works is you go on Realtor or Zillow or whatever website and you look at, okay, three bedroom, two bathroom in this neighborhood or five bedroom, six bathroom in this other neighborhood, this school district, what, what are houses they're looking like? What are they selling for? How much square footage? And you can do some comps and it makes sense. The difficulty with single family is it fluctuates a ton, right? So literally six months ago, a particular house would have a very different price from six months later, which is now, especially today because of the interest rate environment, right? So the Fed has raised interest rates dramatically in the past six months. Mm -hmm. The price to go buy a house now, if I'm a buyer to go buy a house, my, my loan interest rate is much higher because interest rates have gone up about, I think, three to 4% in the past six months. So there's now a lot fewer buyers, right? So there's a lot less demand. And so relatively speaking, less demand, same supply, pricing is going down, right? With multifamily, it's valued as a business, right? So first of all, there's, there's less multifamily apartments, complexes out there for sale at any given point in any given market. And so um, there's not as much supply issue and there's not as much demand issue, but more interest, more importantly, the value of that apartment complex depends on how much cash it generates. Right. And that's literally just, it's valued as a business. So if, if you buy a complex with a hundred units, which, you know, so again, back to our example of what we just did with, with the 90, 94 to 97 year complex, our, our total rent roll, meaning how much people paid in rents a month, three years ago was $50,000. Last September, I guess, two weeks ago, and same as now, it's about $75,000, right? So we moved the top line by about 50% in three years. How did we do that? We paid attention to the things that residents care about, right? We improved bathrooms. We 
took out carpet, put in hardwood floors. We painted interiors and then we landscaped. Like that's the basic things we did, right? And then because we did those things, we said, hey, your rent needs to go up because everywhere around us rents are going up. And the current, the current inflationary environment actually helps apartment investors because you can pass on inflation pricing to, to tenants. To take a step back in a multifamily or in an apartment space, the value really depends on profit. And if you can raise your top line, if you are just paying attention to the basics and being consistent about, okay, the, your lease is coming up for renewal, you're getting a 5% raise or a 3% raise or a 10% raise, whatever your market dictates. You're also paying attention to expenses, right? Expenses will go up as everything else goes up in price, but the difference between top line and bottom line is going to actually not increase. Your expenses will go up, but not at, as fast a pace as your revenues, right? And so your profit increases over time. And that's where if you apply that to whatever the multiple of the cap rate that you're applying to the value of this asset, you generate a ton of value by just really passing on a $50 increase, multiply that by 50 units, multiply that by 12 months. It has a tremendous effect. Um, and then again, just being consistent with making some improvements to the property and pay attention to the basics. So my point here is apartments are valued as a business. And as an owner of apartments, you're actually in control of the value of the apartment complex because you're in control of the expenses and you're somewhat in control of the rents that you charge, right? So you have a lot more power in consistently growing the value of your business versus somebody who just buys a single family house. So as in a single family house, I, I refer to it like a fashion show. It's like, you know, what's in fashion this week? What, what, <laughs> what, what town are you in, right? I mean, New York City during the pandemic, everything was on sale because nobody wanted to be there. Two years later, you know, rents are up 30% a year, like people are complaining. So it's very much up and down. Um, so it's just, you, you're much more insulated in an apartment type setting because you're really priced as a business. And that's the difference in how things are valued, which makes it a, a more clear path to, to driving value. Yeah, I think one of the aspects of multifamily investment that struck me is how risk averse it is to this exact point of you have multiple apartments. And so a vacancy potentially in one to three apartments affects you a lot less than if you had a vacancy in your one single fam family apartment, which makes it a right. lot more stable. Love to dive into some of the operations in multifamily investing. So I know you have a property management company that helps you with that. And you started to tell me a little bit about how you increase the value of a property. What else goes into the operations? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a terrifically low tech business, right? So operations are, how do you show the units, right? How do you, first of all, advertising, right? How do people find the apartment? Um, and that can be as as expensive or inexpensive as you like, and as high tech or as low tech as you like. Most of the, so again, I don't influence this too much for our property managers, but typically they use some online marketing where things show up on things like apartments.com, which is kind of all over the place and omnipresent. And those subscriptions often trickle down to lesser known sites, but more regional and local sites. Um, they also do quite a bit of stuff on Facebook marketplace, right? So they'll go and they'll boost, Hey, this apartment in this area. And that's how people find us. Sometimes we will do like, uh, 
we call them flags where we'll put flags up on our property so people can see them as they drive by and like, hey, open, apartments available, whatever. Um, but really it depends on the area, right? Some places you need to do that. Some places you don't. Some places um, there's a shortage of, of housing, frankly, and that tends to be the case in many places where we have our, our apartments. Um, so then from there it becomes, I mean, the next stage in operations is, you know, how do people call? What do they, what do they get? How do they get an appointment? And again, it's important that you have somebody who can show up and show an apartment at the potential residence time and not just, yeah, I'm there on Friday, three to five, show up, right? So you want to be available. Um, then there's a back, back office process for taking the application, um, screening the tenant. We look for a certain credit score. We don't deal with that. I personally don't deal with that. Our property management company does, but they, they screen the tenants, make sure they meet whatever requirements they're looking for. Um, they often look for references or where they lived prior to this. Once the tenant moves in, so they have a checklist for, you know, what, what does a rent ready apartment look like? Is it freshly painted? What do the floors look like? If it's carpet, is it cleaned or is it brand new carpet? Um, but beyond that, they have an electronic system. We have this in all of our properties where, you know, if a resident has an issue or there's something that needs to be fixed, I have a leaking toilet or my light bulb is out, they can submit what's called a work order that flows to a central place of the property management company through their system. They respond to that. A maintenance person shows up and addresses it with the tenant on the tenant's time. Um, and then they handle all the utilities billing, right? All of the... Uh, all of the things that need to be taken care of, right? Yeah. Landscaping, uh, mowing lawn, removing snow, if snow needs to be removed, which most of our apartments do. Yeah. Um, but that's it. So, I mean, operations really re relies or depends upon being responsive to the tenants, keeping tenants mm -hmm. happy. And there's some balance, right? Because, you know, once you know your complex, you kind of know the residents that are there, you kind of know who's a headache tenant and you kind of know who when they call you, it's legit. You need to be there and, and show up and, and make sure things go right. Yeah. I mean, but really it's just being, um, being responsive. Taking yeah. care of tenants. And from the other side of renting an apartment, we all appreciate having responsive landlords, et cetera. So that's really yeah. nice. How are you thinking about growing your business or your portfolio? Um, I think about it differently every day. <laughs> that's um, fun. No, so yeah, I think we're kind of in a very fortunate place where we don't have to grow it. Frankly, That's great. Yeah. Which, which is, I mean, a very privileged place to be, mm -hmm. but is nice and low pressure in that, especially in a high interest environment like this, there's less pressure to do anything, right? We've done a few deals this year, frankly, capitalizing on a really good rate environment and I think we're probably going to be a bit less aggressive in the next year for sure. Yeah. Uh, and just look at opportunities that make sense. And if they really do, we'll do them. If they don't, we're just going to take it easy. Um, but there's really no pressure to grow because life is comfortable. I got into this business to, frankly, see my kids more and be able to drive them to various activities and see them at swim meets and, and gymnastics meets and whatnot. Um, but yeah, there's a part of me that says, you know, I need to go and hire staff and build a business like a little PE firm, have a fundraising arm, have a an accounting arm, have a deal arm. And even yeah. maybe, you know, some people are saying, well, at some point you need to go build a property management arm because you can have all kinds of efficiencies. I mean, all of that is on the table. It's just how much work do you choose to do and to what end, right? 
how is my life going to be different if I did all those things? Right. Um, and I think that's the real question. Like, what am I looking for and what, to what end, right? Like, yeah. What am I, what am I trying to achieve that I guess I don't already have? Mm -hmm. I want to pull us back for a bit and look at the landscape again. How would one look at various regions in the U.S. and say, I think this is a good place to buy a multifamily property? Yeah. So, I mean, the primary driver of good returns is three things, job growth, income growth, population growth. Okay. Right. So you look, that's a pretty simple way to look at it and almost too simplistic. When you look at it that way, it's all in the Southeast, right? It's Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama. It's the Southeast, Texas, right? All those, all those areas everybody knows about. All the places you hear people moving to. It's yep. Austin, right? It's where you are. It's Miami. It's, yep. it's Arizona. Um, but then you look at Hurricane Ian just happened, right? And Fort Myers was hit. Fort Myers doubled in its population in the last like 20 years. And while you... Yeah, it's great to be on the beach. It's great to be in the tropics where it doesn't snow. I think we really have to be increasingly more conscious of where do we live, right? Yeah. Environmentally, and what does that mean? Like people are leaving California because of forest fires. People are leaving Arizona or moving to Arizona right now, but is there enough water in Arizona? I don't know, right? I mean, you just hear the Colorado River Basin is just being depleted and there's not much to replenish it. And I'm not sure how that's going. Uh, the other day I was dropping off my kids at school and I heard an NPR that like, well, there's some population studies are predicting there's going to be a tremendous shift in population towards the Great Lakes regions because of the water, right? And who knows what's right? I think the reality is you can actually invest in all 50 states in the United States and make money. You just have to know the local market, right? Some of our successes have been in very remote areas where... I mean, you've been to Marquette. Marquette's a pretty small town, right? Not a town yeah. that I originally earmarked for a place to go invest. It's it's on Lake Superior. It's super cold. We saw this guy surfing in <laughs> like 50 degree weather or probably 35 degree weather on Lake Superior. It's like, this is nuts. I sent the picture to my buddies in Southern California. I'm like, you guys are soft. That's Here's crazy. the real guy over here. <laughs> yeah, he had his wetsuit on. He was really good to go. Like, he was just ready. <laughs> there are I waves mean, so up there on Lake Superior? Oh yeah, it was it was windy. Like the guy was, I mean, he has a surfboard, so clearly he does it regularly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so I mean, so that market is a very small market. It's like a thirty thousand person town, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing there, like nothing around there. But it's diversified. It's got a big hospital. It's got a big university. It's got forestry. It's got mining. There's some tourism. There's some local industry. Some manufacturing. And that town has been so successful for us. And frankly, I think part of the reason has been there just hasn't been a lot of new supply of apartments, right? So there's there's highly paid professionals that live there. Um, it's a high quality of life because it's super outdoors. It's remote from everything. And there's not a good supply of high quality apartments. So people are paying a lot to live there, which we could not have predicted and frankly didn't predict, but ended up just being a slam dunk. So we bought another property up there. So um to your question as to where, I mean, invest in places, you know, I mean, really what you're looking for is a diversified economy, right? You don't want a one meatpacking town where if the meatpacking factory closes, everybody moves. You want some diversification across industry, 
you want job growth, you want population growth, you want income growth. Those are the key things. That's really helpful. I know that one of your passions, David, is helping people in careers get out of the rat race who are hoping to get out of the rat race. I'd love for you to share more about that. I know you've written some material there. What are the highlights? Well, I think, yeah. So, I mean, that whole kind of passion really reflects my journey in a bit in that I was a very highly paid professional. Consultant. Right. Right. And, and, and you're and traveling all, too much. Correct. I think, I think the, the difficulty with highly paid professionals and frankly, just being overly educated or being very educated is you're often forced to specialize, right? The more educated you are, the more specialized you get. That's true in engineering, the legal careers, uh, medicine, whatever. You get very highly paid, you get very specialized, you get very highly taxed. Right. So as long as you're a W-2 employee, you're working for a company, right? You're taxed at the highest bracket possible. And that's the tax code in the U.S., right? It's a progressive tax code. The more you make, the more you get taxed, period, which is fine. But I mean, myself being in that position, like you make a ton of money and then you turn around and it's tax season. You're like, wait, what am I keeping? Like what's going on? Right. And you're living a very middle-class life by all standards. And I feel like too many people do that and too many, too many very highly educated people do that. And then of course, in my consulting, I was working for a lot of private equity owned businesses. And I was seeing the other side of, you know, here are entrepreneurs that started something that frankly just took a risk and, and did well. And sure. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't a very easy journey, but some of those people that I was helping make even richer, I just wasn't very impressed with as individuals. <laughs> um, and it's a bit of an arrogant thing to say. And I, I realized that, but I mean, I just felt like, you know, sure. This person worked hard and maybe at some, at some point they got lucky and that's fine. Yeah. I think we've but all been they, there, but, but, they, but they didn't go through, they didn't go through some of the hardship from, uh, all the things that you're told, right. Go to the Ivy league schools, go to these, that business school, or go get this education and go get, take all these math and calculus classes and, you know, they'll be rewarded. I felt like it was just not very equitable affair. And I frankly got annoyed enough to try and go do something else. Right. It's, it's the same thing Marchin talks about in the gentle nudge, like you, yeah. you need that push to go do something, right. You want to own something that's yours. And I feel like too many people don't have the courage to go do that. Right. That's and so true, yeah. we're 25 years later stuck in, you know, some very specialized job. Right. And then at some point you're, too highly paid. And then all of a sudden a restructuring happens and you're no longer employed. Do you think right? or, it's because, cause you touched on too many people don't make that shift. Is it because you think they're scared? You also mentioned just now something about you become too highly paid to want to take that risk where you have no pay or very little pay for some time. And I think both these things play a role in some other factors as well. What are your thoughts? A couple of things. I think risk taking depends on who are you responsible for, right? If you're just responsible for yourself, it's a lot less responsibility than if you're responsible for yourself and your spouse and your kids and their college education and some of these other things. And I think that in a capitalistic society like the United States, it's all too easy to, you know, get a good job out of college and upgrade your life, 
Oh, I got a good job. Let me go buy a fancy house. Oh, let me go buy a fancy car. Oh, let me go buy this and the other and the next thing, which really handcuffs you, right? It gives you a lack of ability to take other financial risk because now you're at a certain point in your upgraded life and you don't want to go back down, right? If you were rooming with a roommate in college, you could probably room with a roommate after graduating college for a couple of years. But if you have made that leap to go buy your own condo or your own house, you're probably not going back to room with anybody, right? But now you have to pay for your house. And so are you going to go start a company where you don't know if you're going to be able to pay your mortgage? I think it's really comes down to that, right? And so I think on the one hand, people that have the flexibility to keep expenses low often don't, right? And then they kind of spend themselves into a corner. And sometimes people just have other things they need to pay for, right? Like some people take care of their parents, some people take care of their kids. And while they might have great ideas, they don't have the luxury of being able to go take risks because these other people depend on them. Yeah. So, so until, un until you have that latitude to say, <laughs> I'm going to go do this. And if it fails, I have a good fallback plan. I just, I feel like too many people don't believe they have that option. Yeah. I search quite a bit myself, right? And what should I invest in, right? So for the longest time, I was investing only in stocks, right? Or, I mean, I had some real estate investments, but they were minor and not too significant. And with all of our jobs, you leave a career, you leave a job, you have some stock money. And if you cash it out, the system is set up that this money just stays there until your retirement, right? Because again, the pensions didn't exist or don't exist in most companies anymore. So you end up with a stock portfolio and... When I learned more about real estate or when I really eventually made the leap of, I want to get off the road. We have these single family houses and duplexes and threeplexes, but they don't dramatically change our life. How do we scale that business? I ended up making the leap of selling most of my stock portfolio and investing in multifamily, right? That was my start. So I ended up taking the prepayment penalty because I withdrew my funds early from the retirement accounts. And when you do that, you automatically are faced with the prospect of paying income taxes on that money because now all the cash you just cashed out becomes income. So let's say you cash out a million dollars in quote retirement money, right? So let's say you have a million dollars sitting in an IRA, individual retirement account. You have to pay a 10% early withdrawal fee because you're not 59 and a half if you're younger than 59 and a half. So that's $100,000 penalty of a million dollars. And then depending on your tax bracket, you have to pay somewhere between 20 and 30% or 35% in taxes because now this money is income. So let's say you're faced with, let's say $300,000 in income tax. So your million becomes 600, right? This is why most people don't do it because it's too big of a hit. And of course, why would you do such a thing? Um, I did it because it made sense and I didn't have to pay that $300,000 income tax because I was getting the benefit of all the depreciation, all the quote unquote lost money because I just invested in this and I could accelerate depreciation and take it on year one. So I paid that 10% prepayment penalty, but I didn't pay the income tax side. So that's yeah. I went from being a professional, highly paid consultant and paying loads and loads of money in taxes to being a business owner and having loads and loads of refunds. Right. Um, I was going through this journey. I was looking at really what are the options of what to invest, right? Some people invest in startups. 
that's a good motto, but it's got a different risk profile. And it's very well known that the majority of startups don't make it. If you are a really good investor, you're going to get some really outsized returns on a couple and they'll make up for all the ones that didn't make it. And that's the VC model. I worked with PE guys. PE guys take businesses that have made it through that startup phase to be established businesses, but are still lacking in professional running of a business. Mostly it's family members that have family quabbles that do things that are inefficient and PE guys invest in those businesses and they just frankly professionalize them. So I understood that path. But for me to do something like that, I would have to go buy a business and run it, which all seems like a ton of work. Yeah. And frankly, you could still not make it. And so I looked at real estate and again, like we had seen my wife and I, Jessica and I would seen single family and it worked. It's just, it wasn't significant enough. And it seemed Mm -hmm. like a pretty easy enough path to go multifamily, invest in that. That's what we picked, but I kind of examined all the other ones, right? I looked at, you know, franchises because franchises are, there's a process, you're supported, there's a brand that you invest in, right? It's more of a known entity. Right. Just seemed like a lot more work, right? So, I mean, I am lazy, right? I'll call it efficient, whatever, (laughs) right? So I want to get the most out of my time. And so I picked multifamily and I've been very happy and grateful. I mean, I did examine crypto a little bit. I didn't spend too much time on it. Happy I didn't right now. Maybe not. Maybe now is a good time to go look at it further. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like there's cycles, right? There's cycles in all of these things as we learn in business school. Yeah. And you can't necessarily time the cycle. You just have to understand the asset class well and make an educated decision about whether it's for you or not. Everyone's got their own risk profile and what they're comfortable with. What I wanted people to know more about is that there's this passive way to make money by investing in whatever asset class, but really make as a highly paid professional or really anybody, Mm -hmm. your job is to go get a job, make some money, and then save some money to put it to work for you. And that's that's not a groundbreaking concept by any means, but it's just discipline, right? So save some money and put it to work for you. You can put it in a stock index fund. You can put it into a franchise. You can put it into a VC fund, whatever really you're comfortable with, but you want some passive money coming your way while you're sleeping. That's the concept. Making money work for you. I want to touch on David, your why. I want to do that because I love the story. I know it's because of your family. Can you tell us a little bit about? Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) We grew up not very wealthy, right? And I mean, we didn't grow up poor, but we definitely weren't wealthy at all, right? I mean, I remember very well, I mean, so I was born in Ukraine, you were born in Ukraine. I lived there till I was seven and a half, almost eight, Um, moved to Sierra Leone. Um, I mean, the poverty in Sierra Leone is stark, right? And the stuff happening in Ukraine right now are pretty intense. It's horrible, yeah. So we know what life is like elsewhere. Um, throughout college, I mean, my experience coming to the U S so I came to the U S with a thousand dollars. I didn't have anyone, right. My, my parents mm-hmm. are back. You, you and my parents are back in Sierra Leone. Yeah. Our, our parents, parents. Back, <laughs> our, our parents, you our family saying. is back in Sierra Leone. They're ours. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that you said you think we're 12 years apart. and like, I think, you know, we're, no, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the. My experience here was uh, rough, right? I came with $1,000. I landed at JFK and I had to get to Michigan. And the ticket to Michigan was like 458 bucks. Yeah, right? and you did a Greyhound. And, and so I was like, no, I, I, 
that's half of my life's worth. Right. <laughs> because 17, right? So how else can I get to Michigan, right? And this guy's like, yeah, go through, go find a, a row of toll-free pay phones and dial 1-800-GREYHOUND. I'm like, how do I dial numbers on a, on a phone line? Like, right. that's foreign to me. What are you talking about? In any case, got to Michigan for like less than a hundred bucks. Um, and then I worked, um, I worked at a gas station. I worked at a warehouse to eat, right? And this was great because I remember my first paycheck was like $240. I was so over You're like, wow, so I can go 2.5x the distance to Michigan. Yeah, like I was, I mean, it's <laughs> it's exciting, right? So you're counting dollars, not Leon's or, or Grini right. or any of that cash. And it's like, this is my own money. And I was super frugal, right? I Everyone's like, hey, when are you buying a car? I'm like, I have a bike. I'm good. Like, I don't care. I'm, I'm biking <laughs> through the winter. The thing oh. that really sucked, right, was oh, in winter biking it's... when it rained in winter. Like, the snow is fine. But if it rained, yeah, you're getting wet and you're getting totally cold. And you're, That's like, cold for the whole day. Harsh, right? So that yeah. was my experience. Um, and so, I mean, I frankly... I'm just saying this to say, to just highlight I understand, the distance I, I, understand I understand what it means to be poor. And I mean, even then, like I wasn't poor, like, oh, poor me. Like I know people in Sierra Leone have right. nothing to eat and kids yeah. are carrying their chairs on their heads to go to school. Right. right. So, I mean, I wasn't taking pity on myself, but I mean, relatively speaking, like I lived very frugally. I didn't go out anywhere. I made my own sandwiches and that was it. Yeah. Like, I cooked ramen noodles. And yeah. things that everyone can relate to, right? Coming to the U.S. So I went to community college. I got a scholarship to go to community college. Um, they had an honors program. They didn't care if you were a foreign student, which was great. So I worked, saved a bunch of money while I was going to college for transferring to university, right? And the whole point was to try and save enough so that I could pay for my last two years of university. But then, of course, the coup happened again in Sierra Leone. You and mom had to come. And you, took, to you took this in. You were taking care of us at, how old were you, 17? I was 19. 19. I had to send, I had to send money for tickets. Yeah. I had to yeah. find a flat. I had to basically do everything, which is fine. I'm not complaining about it. But no wonder that you're... Kinda, that kind of interfered with the college fund right. <laughs> a little bit. Um, and then I applied to all the Ivy League places, right? And I applied to all the scholarships and I got all the rejection letters because I didn't have the connections. And I still have those, right? Stanford, Harvard, all of them, Chicago. But then of course, when I got a job and the job was paying for it, all of those guys were fine with accepting you. And like, yeah, please come, here you go, no problem. Same grade, same person, no issue. So my experience, is forged in life is not the fairest, which is fine. Yeah. And I pretty much have to like kill what I eat, <laughs> right? Yeah. And at some level, I got tired of being poor, right? Yeah. I guess is what it comes down to. So I got tired of being told, no, you can do this, or you can do that. And I mean, I knew I was able to, I knew I was smart enough. And it was just a matter of, did I have the guts to go do it? And so I was ticked off enough to go do it. Specifically, when I was in my consulting gig, I mean, I didn't see my kids, right? I was traveling Monday through Thursday. And I mean, you miss things with your kids when you're traveling Monday through Thursday. There's just no two ways about it. And while the career was exciting and the money was good, the taxes were bigger and there's no way to replace time with your kids and your wife. And I mean, having four children and being on the road is just very, very tough. Yeah. So 
I mean, when it was one weekend, Bridget was eight at the time and she was like, dad, are you going to work the next day? And really it was more about, are you going to not be around for the next three, four days? That was the question. And it was a bit of a gut punch. So Jessica and I sat down and talked about it and it was a tough conversation, right? It was, we had to like face the reality of our life and the fact that, yeah, we're making good money. Yeah. We had pretty comfortable life, like all standards were doing well. But the quality of life wasn't there because she was doing all the juggling pretty much by herself, Monday through Thursday. I would show up Thursday night pretty tired and yeah, I could work from home on Friday. I may have to go to the office on Friday, but then I was back at it, you know, Monday morning. So Sunday night was kind of like a prep for the week. So it was just mentally a tough experience and enough to make me want to do something different. So that's my why. My why is being able to do what I want to do with the people I love to do it with whenever I want to do it with. And that's, that's pretty much it. Amen. I hope that folks listening can use that as inspiration to get on whatever thing they're sitting on and hoping to do. I also love how necessity is the mother of invention. It's the biggest kick in your butt. To, I love what you mentioned about you just got ticked off and got tired of being poor and wanted to change things. I so much feel like we're also capable of doing whatever it is that we want to be doing and just need to go get it. Go kill what you're going to eat, to use your phrase again. Great. You're in your 40s. What do you know for sure? What do I know for sure? I know who I am for sure. That's about Which it. Which is? Uh, I'm a poor kid that came from Ukraine and Sierra Leone. I mean, at heart, I still have trouble spending money on things and often will take an extra apple from the morning hotel stand just because I could put in my bag and have it later for free. Yeah, I definitely do that with napkins, with snacks. I want to touch on that because you just recently purchased a gift for yourself and knowing you really are this poor kid at heart from Ukraine and Sierra Leone just gave us all so much happiness that you got yourself a Tesla. Yeah, no, I splurged a bit. Um, Look at his even, like, this is how he's like, yeah, I'm so excited about my Tesla. Yeah, I splurged a bit. That's great. It's no, important it, to it, celebrate it's, the small wins. Yeah, small, yeah, I mean, no, huge. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's been it's been a good journey. The car is definitely not a, uh, it's definitely something I, I plan to use and I have used a ton already. And I think the thing that precipitated that too is, I mean, Bridget just turned 15 and just got her driver's license. So she's going to be driving my old she's car. She's going to need a car. And hey, it's she, she is driving my old car. Environment. Exactly. Um, so good the car you. is super cool, though. The car is super cool. It's it's green. It's fun. It's a it's green definitely... car? Oh, sorry. No, it's sustainable. It's like I thought it was black. <laughs> it looked, I thought it was black. It looks black in the photos. What are you saying? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a black green car. Yeah. Um, that's great. The EV life. Th there's certainly there's certainly other green cars you could buy that are not as expensive, but I think this one is I fun. Could afford it. I that's could awesome. It and it was fun. Yep. Yeah, and then to wrap us up now, what are your favorite things about being a big brother? The favorite things are seeing you grow up to be an independent person. <laughs> to be an annoying. Um, baby sister still. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I really, I feel, I feel very good about all of the hard work I've put into you, you know, <laughs> I, feel, 
feel like it hasn't gone unnoticed <laughs> and it hasn't gone in vain. Yeah. I did something, I did some things right. So yes. yeah, it, My- I feel very proud. And I'm here to say thank you for all the sacrifices you put in. All, <laughs> all the essays, so <laughs> all the essays to all the applications you've done, and proofreading those, and saying no, don't apply there, apply here, and saying, yeah, you can do it, you got it. Yeah, and here I am, I got it. Thank you, David. Love you. It was great to have you on. That's awesome. Thank you for having me. On.